Rather than having hospitals making entrepreneurial decisions about what services they think are most viable and are most beneficial, they are in many ways responding to these perverse incentives that are put in place by the federal government rather than market-based incentives of supply, demand, technology, innovation, and competition. This is not free market capitalism, it's crony capitalism, it's corporate fascism, it's central planning, it's interventionism, it's arbitrary, it's one-size-fits-all, it's bureaucratic, it's technocratic. It may be the one industry in America that is the farthest removed from a free market. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 29. It's been a while since we put out an episode. It seems like once the clocks change for daylight savings, as the U.S. is in their wintertime and Australia's in the summertime, we tend to have a hard time getting together to actually record episodes. So that's our excuse for now. But we actually have a better excuse, which is, of course, the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic crisis. want to bring our perspective to the conversation around this thing, in particular as it pertains to the discussions we've had about public space, as well as Tim's insider look into the healthcare system, since he has quite a bit of experience designing and building hospitals. A quick note before we get started, we recorded most of this episode on the 13th of April in 2020. Since then, the COVID situation has evolved where we're not seeing a lot of the peaks that were predicted. And it has taken us almost a month to do the editing and mixing down on this thing. So you can see why we aim for evergreen content rather than trying to newsjack current events. So our discussion here is really intended to be a more generic and broadly applicable discussion that isn't specifically about the COVID crisis, but is about the idea of pandemics in general. Yeah, I've had this on our list of topics to discuss really ever since we started the podcast, I think. I've always wanted to go through a little bit of the history of the healthcare infrastructure in the United States and talk about how much it's been manipulated and distorted by government regulations, not just on healthcare services, but even on the way in which hospitals get built. I also want to talk about some solutions that are out there that hospitals can take to provide for their temporary space needs, as well as to plan for future outbreaks like this so that their facilities are better able to respond. Before I started my own architecture practice, I spent about seven years working as a project manager almost exclusively on healthcare projects for the previous firm I worked for. And I worked on projects ranging anywhere from $500,000 up to $20 million projects, looking at many different specialties and departments within hospitals and outpatient facilities, as well as master plans where we would look at the entire hospital facility and document all of the space and programmatic needs of each department in order to define future projects that they could then complete. So in this experience, I've been exposed to a lot of aspects of the healthcare system. I've sat around the table with CEOs and vice presidents of hospitals as they define their priorities, and I've interviewed everyone from the physicians to the nurses to the facilities managers to the housekeeping staff. So while there are many aspects of medical care that I'm not all that knowledgeable about, I've had a pretty broad exposure to everything that goes on at hospitals and how they make some of the decisions that they make, particularly about how they're going to expand their services and facilities. In addition, I've taken projects through governmental approval processes, 
which are often required in order to get projects built. One of the biggest problems we're hearing about during this COVID-19 crisis is that there aren't enough beds, that there aren't enough hospital beds, there aren't enough ICU beds, there aren't enough patient rooms in order to house and properly treat this surge of patients that are coming in with COVID-19. So this question of, you know, why aren't there enough rooms, why aren't there enough beds, is something that I think I can speak to. Yeah, this is really one of the main arguments for locking down the entire society. Exactly. And the slogan that everyone's been told to repeat is, flatten the curve. And I probably don't really need to explain this because everyone's seen it on every single news feed for the last two months. But it strikes me that this is actually quite similar to a concept that many planners and engineers would be familiar with, which is designing for peak capacity versus something like an average capacity. Now, this is clearly an economic decision that has to be made when you're designing something like a road or a sewer pipe or, of course, a hospital. And it would be nice to have hospitals that had such an abundance of beds that they would be completely prepared for any potential epidemic or pandemic that would create a sudden influx of patients. However, this looks at the problem from a purely one-sided point of view. And it's the same kind of point of view that we're seeing from a lot of these medical professionals, where the only thing they're focused on is stopping the disease, which of course is an important thing to do. But there's a mentality that the disease can and should be stopped at any cost. And as we're seeing, those costs can be pretty damn high when you're shutting down the whole economy. And we're seeing these huge numbers in unemployment. And of course, the whole economy is coming to a standstill. To me, this shows exactly why you don't want some sort of technocratic science-based government system. Because for any given problem, you're going to get these narrowly focused experts that are calling the shots for how the whole system needs to respond. But there's a good chance that these experts have inherent biases towards solving the one problem that they know the most about at the expense of creating other problems that they may not fully understand. And hear people saying stuff like, how many lives would you sacrifice in order to save a few points on the stock market or in order to save X number of jobs? But the reality is that when the economy stops like that and goods aren't being produced, that in itself will cause deaths. And it's completely irresponsible to respond to one potential threat without acknowledging the costs, both in terms of economic activity and human life, that the supposed cure will result in. I think the question that people will be asking in years to come is, was this decision to shut down the economy and order people to stay at home, the best response, or even an appropriate response, to the threat that COVID-19 presented. And of course, at the time that these decisions were being made, there wasn't a lot known about this disease. Everybody was fearing the worst. It seemed to be very contagious compared to some other diseases. Although as we've gotten more data and more testing has become available, that the denominator <laughs> seems to be coming down on a lot of those percentages. But still, we are seeing and hearing about hospitals being overwhelmed by some of these patients. One problem you have here, it's not just that a patient shows up and they get treated and they get turned out of the hospital. When these patients come in, some of them can be hospitalized without going to like an ICU and being on ventilator support. And I think they just are observed and treated maybe for a few days, for a week or so, and then get better and are sent on their way. But patients who end up in an intensive care unit, and particularly patients who end up on ventilators, I read a statistic that the patients who survive are in the ICU for like 15 days on average and then back in a nursing unit for another 15 days. And the patients who don't survive are in an ICU bed for like 34 days or something like that. So it's not just a problem of, of a surge of people at the hospital. It's that when these patients show up, they take up a bed and they're there for a month. 
while every day more and more patients are coming in the door and they need beds as well. So that's where you get into a lot of these difficult decisions you're hearing about, like especially in Italy, where they're deciding whether to put, you know, take older people off of ventilators and put younger people onto ventilators and stuff like that. So the hospital beds and particularly the ICU beds, and not just those, but I'll talk in a minute about airborne infection isolation rooms, which are a whole other animal that are even more constrained than ICU beds in most hospitals. Uh, but one thing to remember is that it's it's not just the beds or the rooms themselves. It's if you built a hundred more ICU rooms in a hospital, unless you have the ICU staff who is trained to care for patients in those type of spaces. Intensive care is a is a very specialized type of patient care, and and there are a lot of resources that go into caring for a patient in one of those spaces. So I see it as three constraints within these hospitals. There's the rooms themselves, having the appropriate rooms for these patients. There's the staff who can properly staff those rooms. And then there's the equipment. We're hearing about these shortages of ventilators where you don't have a mechanical ventilator for every ICU room. And in fact, I'm here in Maine and we read something that there's something like 200 ventilators in the entire state of Maine. Yeah, but that's like one for every person. <laughs> right. So that's another constraint. And so even if you were able to build more beds and get more staff, you still might not have the ventilators that people need. And it is a small number of, of COVID patients who actually do need ventilators, but they do seem to be overwhelming those capacities in some places. So this flattening the curve, in theory, it, it could be very effective. And some people are saying that it has been effective in preventing a, a much higher peak from hitting these hospitals. But it has come at a really high cost of basically everything that we do in our daily lives, not just for the economy, as you said, you know, the, the stock market, but even just in our quality of life and doing the things that we do that, that make us feel alive. Not to mention the sudden ramp up of the surveillance state, where you hear some crazy stories coming out of China with things like drones flying around, taking people's temperatures and shouting at them to go back inside or put a mask on or whatever. But at the same time, you have busybodies in the U.S. who are going around policing their neighbors, calling in reports when they see somebody getting a contractor to come work on their house or something. And to me, this is possibly the most terrifying part of what's been going on, is how quickly the normie population has taken on the mantle of becoming enforcers for this kind of totalitarian state. <laughs> Whether or not you consider that to be justified due to the virus, it's pretty much the key ingredient in any dystopian novel that you'll read. Yeah, that is frightening. It's kind of amazing how quickly people are willing to sacrifice their civil liberties and beg the state to take them away from other people when faced with this type of crisis. And... Well, I think that the, the intent of trying to flatten the curve by things like social distancing are probably the right thing to do. I think that governments everywhere have really been abusing their authority to restrict people's civil liberties. If civil liberties don't exist when they're under their greatest pressure, then civil liberties don't exist. the liberties that are being suppressed at the moment primarily are the freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom to go earn a living, and even the freedom of speech where you've heard some stories about people either being kicked off of Facebook or Twitter or even arrested in some places for saying things that were counter to the official narrative of the pandemic. Now the biggest fear in a pandemic is transmission of the virus and when you're talking about a virus passing from human to human that transmission is most likely to occur in some form of a public space. And in fact, if you think about it, what a quarantine or an isolation really means is simply that you are prevented from using public spaces and you are de facto forced to remain in your own private property. 
The challenge for us as libertarians and anarchists is to describe how this could be managed in a society in which we didn't have government controlling all these public spaces and ordering people inside. How could public spaces be managed to minimize transmission risk without compromising people's rights to use that space in the way that governments have done? Now, the typical libertarian response, which I've heard from a number of people out there, is that in a stateless society, all of these public spaces would be privately owned and establish various constraints on the ways that people can use those spaces. This is an argument that we have challenged, not just related to this issue, but it's something that comes up, you hear it like in the immigration debate, that they would be managed in this way by you know private road owners setting their own regulations. That would certainly be a component. We've thought about this a little bit differently. As we've argued in some previous episodes, particularly a talk I gave in episode 19, we've argued that many public spaces, particularly government-owned public spaces like roads and plazas and parks and beaches, could not just be converted to privately-owned space where the private owner would have eviction rights over anybody within that space. And that's it. eviction rights in private property is effectively how any property owner would be able to enforce whatever rules they set for their property. Essentially, if you're on someone's private property and you want to do something that they don't want you to do, they can't threaten you with force outright, but they can require you to leave the property. And if you then refuse to leave the property, then they could forcibly evict you under typical libertarian property rights theory. What we've argued is that on certain types of public space that have not been properly homesteaded under private ownership, this eviction right does not exist. The way we formulate this is that on unowned property, nobody has a right to evict anybody, right? If you and I met in the middle of the desert and neither of us had homesteaded it, I couldn't tell you to get out of my desert and then threaten you with force to make you comply. On unowned property, everybody has the right to access it and nobody has the right to evict anyone. When we think about government-owned space, I think most libertarians would argue that space that the government has claimed as its own, whether it's roads or beaches or other public areas, have not been properly homesteaded because the government, for one thing, often just makes naked claims to these spaces. You look at national parklands in western parts of the United States. The other is that any improvement that they've made to these spaces, such as paving roads, those improvements have been funded by taxation, which is money that they have taken from people illegitimately. So our argument is that since governments have not properly homesteaded roads, that they haven't established eviction rights over roads and other public spaces. In other words, most government-owned public spaces should have truly public access rights to them. And in the event that public spaces were to be privatized, or we've used the word divestiture to clarify that they're not necessarily becoming private access spaces, if public spaces are divested from government ownership, the new owners would need to respect and grant easements for public access rights, which have been well-established. And as I said, if you want to quarantine people, then that means that you will be preventing them from accessing these public spaces. So this presents a potential conflict with our theory of public space. Now, an important thing to consider here is that with private ownership of these spaces comes not only certain rights, but also certain liabilities that certain uses of those spaces could impose upon the owners. When governments own these spaces, there's a complete lack of liability since the government itself tends to be the ultimate arbiter in any dispute between a private citizen and the government for any misuse of that public space that could cause damages to somebody else. So if these spaces were privately owned, there's immediately an incentive for the owners of these spaces to ensure that whatever uses are occurring on these spaces are not causing significant damages to either the users of these spaces or to other parties such as neighboring properties. Now this could often be considered for an issue such as pollution, 
where let's say you have a road with increasing amounts of traffic, which is emitting exhaust fumes onto neighboring properties. I won't get into all the nuts and bolts of, of these arguments, but this is a pretty typical example of how private legal processes could be used to mitigate the damages of those uses, which in, in that case could look like something like those neighboring properties getting some sort of injunction on the road owner to require certain emission limits on the users of that road. Now, the case of a virus is a little bit more complex because if we assume that the virus isn't strictly airborne, that you're not just having virus particles being directly emitted from the public space onto neighboring properties, it's a bit more complex than that because the virus transmission is occurring on these public spaces between the different users of these public spaces. Now, there's sort of a pat answer that you can provide here, which is that anyone who steps onto a public space should be aware of the risks that are present on that public space and is choosing to use that space at their own risk. And what that might look like in this case would mean that before you walk onto a, a road or a sidewalk or a park or something like that, you are either accepting the risk that you will get the coronavirus or you are taking steps to mitigate that risk, which could mean something like wearing a mask or gloves or taking other actions such as washing your hands when you get home. But there's another layer to this, which is what economists would call sort of an externality, which is that there could be people who are contagious, whether or not they actually know it, who are entering that property and increasing the risk for all the other users. Now, this is interesting to me because in libertarian theory, there's a lot of situations where we have these really clear-cut answers for issues that are sort of black and white, whether someone aggresses against someone or steals something. But there are situations where one person is increasing a risk to another person, but isn't strictly causing an aggression against them. Yeah, and they may not even know that they are presenting that risk if they have the disease but are asymptomatic and don't even know that they themselves are a carrier of the disease. Right. In the case of this coronavirus, it's pretty common knowledge that there's something like a two-week incubation period where you are contagious, but you don't show any actual symptoms of the illness. And that's part of what's made this thing so contagious. And I have seen libertarians make arguments in the context of something like fractional reserve banking, that the fact that the bank is telling you that you have money sitting in their vault that doesn't actually exist there is in fact imposing an undue risk on you. And, and this is typically described as a form of fraud. But in most cases, that bank will be able to give you any money that you choose to withdraw at any time. And it's only under special circumstances, like a bank run, that the bank would be unable to make those payments. So what we're looking at in that context is really more of a case of saying that the bank is imposing a risk on its customers. And it's a similar sort of thing where the customers are voluntarily contracting with the bank to hold their money for them. You know, whether or not they're aware of the actual functioning of a fractional reserve system and the risks that that bank may or may not be able to give them back their money, the bank is certainly aware of that risk. And by some libertarian arguments, that bank could be shown to have some liability in that case. So I think there is a place in libertarian theory to consider the imposition of an increased risk on someone as a form of aggression. The tricky thing to figure out here is what is the appropriate and proportionate response to that imposition of risk. I've heard some other people make the analogy that, let's say someone walked into a public space just throwing knives around at random. <laughs> now, obviously, even if that person wasn't trying to hit anyone or, or was trying to miss people, was not, you know, was not intentionally trying to hit anybody, they would still be posing a risk to other people. And in that case, it's pretty clear that the appropriate response would be to somehow physically restrain that person from doing that and possibly evict them from that space. And of course, with the COVID virus, it could be considered a similar sort of thing, that the effects of the virus take a lot longer to realize than having a flying knife hit you in the chest. 
And at the same time, the actual risks, which could be mathematically considered as something like the probability of transmission times the probability that you'll be injured by the virus as a result of that encounter. Now, I work primarily in sales, and when we're looking at potential opportunity for a project, we have similar probabilities that we use to assess the likelihood that we're going to win the project. And we call these the go probability and the get probability. So the go probability is, you know, what's the probability that this project is actually going to happen? And the get probability is the probability that, okay, if this project does happen, what's the likelihood that we're going to win the project? And so there's this conditional probability that you get by multiplying the two of those together to get the total probability that we're going to get a project out of this opportunity. And you can see that this is analogous to the probability of transmission times the probability of serious symptoms. So, of course, there are some people who are much more susceptible to getting serious symptoms if they get the virus. For example, in Australia here, they haven't done mandatory lockdowns, at least not in where I am in Adelaide. And so a lot of businesses are still operating, but a lot of people have chosen to voluntarily isolate. And that includes myself, because we have family members who have had some respiratory problems in the past relating to other illnesses. And our family doctor has advised that the best thing for us is simply to isolate at this point and not risk it. And so, so that's what we've done for the last three or four weeks now, since pretty early on in the piece. I think I was the first person in my office to go in and grab all my, my monitors and everything off of my desk and bring them home and set up shop. But since then, of course, as the news and the panic has spread, my company has put in some more clear policies about working from home and has explicitly said that they will support people's decisions to work from home rather than coming into the office. So going back to my equation there, our get probability is potentially pretty high. And so in order to reduce our total probability, we need to limit the go probability as much as possible and try to avoid contracting the virus in any way we can, at least until there is a better known cure or vaccine that we could use to reduce the risk of severe symptoms. So even though it's very difficult to put any real numbers to these probabilities, it's a rule of thumb that individuals can use to decide how they will respond to this threat. And of course, the more people that are using public spaces, then the higher that go probability is going to be, that risk of transmission. So you have policymakers looking at this going, well, we can't control individual symptoms when they get this virus. But what we can potentially control is the rate of transmission by restricting access to these public spaces. The real challenge comes in making the jump from understanding individual responsibility and individual risk calculations to making arguments about what measures an owner of public space could or should take in order to attempt to reduce risks for everybody in that space. I don't think we can argue that an owner of public space has no responsibility or, or no liability here for this type of increase of risk within their space. If you had an owner of a public road and they weren't maintaining that road, the road was in terrible shape, there was no speed limit or, or at least no enforcement of any speed limits, the intersections didn't function well, it was dangerous for pedestrians and other users of roads. At some point, people would have to look at that owner and say that that owner is being negligent in their maintenance of the public space, particularly if it's requiring people to pay for use of that public space and not just treating it like, like some kind of unowned property. By the way, what I just described is exactly the situation with most government-owned roads. So when it comes to this question of reducing the risk of a virus or spread of a virus, it's hard to assign any kind of specific liability to the owners of public space, but it does seem like they should have some responsibility for taking reasonable measures to reduce the risk to their users of spreading this disease. But again, you also have to balance 
the important right of people to access that space and to use that space, what governments have been doing is just shutting those spaces down effectively. I mean, of course, most places you can still get around. Here in Maine at the moment, they have these kind of shelter-in-place orders in place, but they've basically said that they're not really enforcing them unless they really need to. You know, they're not pulling people over and asking them where they're going, at least not yet. I think that to understand how private owners of public space would respond, a good place to look is the grocery stores. Grocery stores are an example of what I had called back in episode 19, permissive public space, meaning that the owner has the right to evict people, but generally they don't do it. Generally, they're going to allow the public to come in. You know, they're not checking people's citizenship status at the front door of the grocery store or anything like that. Most grocery stores are open to the public. What they have been doing is putting various measures in place to try to balance the risk of infection with the ability of people to continue to use those public spaces in the way that they're accustomed to. And I don't need to go into a whole lot of detail here. I'm sure everybody's <laughs> has stood in line at this point to get groceries. But essentially, they're, they're only allowing a certain number of people in at a time. They're lining people up in a, in a spaced out line outside of the grocery store. Some places are allowing older people who are more susceptible to the disease. They're letting them come in first thing in the morning after they've wiped everything down and gotten everything cleaned up overnight so that there's hopefully less infection from people coming in during the day. And then, you know, I'm sure that they are taking extra measures to get everything wiped down and sanitized compared to what they would do in normal times. So it's a much more kind of surgical approach to trying to find reasonable ways to reduce the risk without just going right to the sledgehammer approach of shutting down the grocery store. If we think about how owners of public space like roads and plazas and parks might do this, first of all, if people are in their cars, they're not, <laughs> they're not really presenting that much of a risk. For pedestrians, they could put in place some kind of a temporary rule that would say that you need to maintain these certain distances from other people. You know, everybody stays six feet apart. Yeah, and from what I've seen, just walking my dog around the neighborhood, people are doing that voluntarily. I mean, that's the sort of thing that as long as you're not in some crowded city street, it's relatively easy to do and imposes very little cost on those users. Right, and they could even do things like requiring that people wear face masks, which I don't think they've done at least over here in the States yet. In fact, my understanding is that the federal government came out initially and said that you don't need to wear face masks. And part of that may have been to try to preserve the supply of masks for healthcare providers. But who knows, maybe wearing face masks would have been even more effective than some of these extreme forced social distancing measures that they've put in place. Even public places like gyms or movie theaters or, you know, barbershops, which were some of the first things on the chopping block when they started closing things down. You could imagine ways that any of those types of spaces could possibly be used safely even during this kind of event. Again, by limiting the number of people, by wiping things down, by requiring people to wear masks and maybe gloves or whatever. Of course, if you're going to a movie theater in the midst of this, you're going to be taking some increased risk upon yourself. But it seems to me like we went awfully quickly to this extreme measure, which, while it may have some success in reducing the number of deaths from this disease, it's going to have a lot of long-term consequences that aren't as easy to quantify as death statistics but could also be very destructive to many people's lives. Another potential mitigation strategy, which is being bandied about at the moment, is the possibility that once there is a vaccine, or once there's a reliable test to determine whether or not you actually have immunity to the virus, that you'll be able to provide some sort of a certificate demonstrating that you have that immunity and are not posing a risk to other users of those public spaces. Now, in the context of a government shutdown, this sounds a lot like Something like, you know, your papers, please, which we've discussed around immigration, where you've got some card or something that you need to show every time you want to go into a public space or certain types of buildings. 
Now, in the context of government-owned public space, that's pretty creepy because not only can the government prevent you from using that particular public space, but they can also do a whole lot of other things to you if you get on their wrong side for whatever reason. So when you have privately owned public spaces, the mere fact that the ownership of these spaces will be far more specialized and decentralized and it's a little bit like the free private cities concept that we discussed with Titus Gebel in episode 25, where even though you're in the city that at a certain level looks like any other city with a government and private citizens, it's structured in a way that the individual citizens are on a much more equal footing with the people who are administering the city. So in a world where all these public spaces were privately owned, there are a lot of solutions like this that people would be more ready to accept Whereas when it's the government that owns those spaces and is imposing these responses, a lot of people will rightly so push back because they fear some sort of ratchet effect that these measures could become more permanently totalitarian. Another potential way in which private ownership of public spaces could possibly result in a better approach or at least a, a more balanced approach to responding to this kind of threat is that we've argued that the form of ownership of some of these public spaces, if they ever are divested from government ownership, that the new ownership should be a form of public ownership, meaning that anybody could claim an ownership stake within that piece of property. We introduced this idea we've called opt-in trusts, which is the entity or the organization which might own the property. And then anybody can opt into that or opt out of that if they want to become an owner and participate in the management and possibly any profits that come out of ownership of that road, as well as share in some of the risks and potential for losses. That's one thought. I mean, of course, there are things like co-ops, there are other kinds of models like that, which could allow for public participation in the management decisions of these spaces. So what that would mean is that if you have something like a public park, that the people who are using that park would have an opportunity to participate in the management decisions for how that space gets utilized, what restrictions are put in place, and how access rights can be maintained. And some people may think that that's what happens now under government ownership, but the important piece that's different is that the ownership model could be something more like a co-op or a corporation or a nonprofit organization or something like that, where everybody's on an equal footing and you're not creating these power structures of rulers and ruled. I think this could better align the incentives for all of the stakeholders and users. So we think that the fact that all of these public spaces are owned by governments is a very significant hindrance to finding the optimal response to this sort of pandemic. Instead of having entrepreneurial judgment and experimentation happening across these different spaces, we have a single, top-down, highly restrictive response from federal and local governments, which is imposing unbearable costs on the whole society. And because there are so few alternative approaches to responding to this virus, you hear about some countries like Sweden being less restrictive, but there's only a few data points. So I think that with private ownership of these public spaces, we would much more quickly be able to find a more nuanced and appropriate response based on local conditions rather than this top-down global panic. All right, I want to switch gears a bit and talk a bit about the healthcare system, particularly the, the healthcare infrastructure and the way that it's been built out in the United States. One thing that we've heard from some people during this crisis is that the situation could have been better managed if we didn't have such a free market in healthcare, and if instead we had more government management of the healthcare system, whether that's something like a single-payer health insurance scheme or a system of government-owned health facilities like the NHS in England and other places and Australia. 
Yeah, and Australia has a combination of state-owned and privately-owned hospitals. In contrast, there's this assumption in the United States that we have this kind of unfettered free market in the provision of health care. That might be a bit of a straw man, but I think that the reality is that there's much more government control and manipulation of the healthcare system than most people realize. So I want to take a few minutes and give a little history of the development of the healthcare system, and in particular, the development of hospital facilities in the United States. Healthcare as we know it today is a fairly modern phenomenon. If you go back to kind of the origins of healthcare, you might have had uh, religious facilities taking care of people who were sick. And for most of human history, if you went to the hospital or whatever its equivalent was at the time, you were probably ready to die. You probably weren't coming out. <laughs> for most of our existence, people didn't even have the concept that they could take actions to heal people beyond maybe trying to make them more comfortable. Even into the 1700s, there weren't a lot of institutionalized healthcare facilities. Most people, if they got sick, they would be treated at home by their personal doctor. Or if you were poor, you might go to a monastery or a nunnery or, or someplace where they took care of not only sick people, but poor people or disabled people. These religious facilities saw that as part of their mission. But again, there wasn't a lot of healing going on. That started to change a bit in the 18th century. Napoleon in France started to build a number of hospitals, mostly to house soldiers who were injured in all the wars he was fighting. And there was precedent for this. Uh, the Romans had military hospitals. But some of Napoleon's hospitals were probably some of the first types of institutions that we might recognize as something similar to a modern hospital. But even towards the end of 18th century, there's still healthcare wasn't really viewed as the kind of science-based profession that it is today. It was a lot of probably more homeopathic types of treatments. Just to give an anecdote here, you know, George Washington, who was, you know, a powerful, wealthy landowner in the United States at that time, when he died, he had been like out chopping wood or something. Probably a cherry tree. <laughs> and it started to rain. He got all wet. And then the next day, he came down with a sore throat. And so they called the doctors in. And the way that the doctors treated him were, first, they started by draining blood from him. <laughs> so they drained like a pint of blood. And then that wasn't working. So then they, they raised blisters on his throat. Because I guess the idea was that they're trying to get like certain fluids out of the body or something. Yeah, the bad humors. Yeah. And then like they raised blisters on his legs and stuff. And then they drained more blood. They drained like half of his blood like by the time it was all said and done. And like halfway through this, he's like realizes that that this is the end. He's not going to make it. And sure enough, he died. But God, can you imagine like that's your healthcare treatment at your end of life just for basically having a sore throat? You know, so that's where we were at the end of the 18th century. That started to change over the course of the 19th century. Uh, this is when you had Florence Nightingale who is well known for really starting the modern profession of nursing as we know it today, where there was more of a shift to the possibility of actively treating patients with the intent of healing them, not just making them more comfortable while they died. At that point, you had doctors performing surgeries and looking to more evidence-based, you know, science-based type of approaches to trying to discover how to heal people. Then towards the end of the 19th century, you had some technological advancements like the use of anesthesia, the discovery of x-rays, the germ theory of disease, and the development of forms of pharmaceuticals. So by the early 20th century, the practice of medicine looked a lot more like it does to us today, where it often didn't make as much sense to be treating people in their homes because you had the equipment and the expertise and the proper facilities to better treat people in a hospital setting. The United States at that time had a mix of various different types of hospitals. Some of the first military hospitals dated back to the end of the 18th century. 
this is where the term Surgeon General comes from. He was in charge of overseeing the network of military hospitals. But those were generally limited to treating soldiers. The tradition of religious institutions caring for the sick continued on as well. So some religious organizations started to develop their own hospitals as well. Then, of course, there were privately owned and built hospitals, both for-profit and non-profit, where a group of doctors might get together and construct a facility where they could perform surgeries and treat more acute patients. And then finally, some places had municipal hospitals where a city government might fund the construction of a hospital. So there has been a strong tradition of non-governmental hospitals in the United States, whether they're religious, non-profit, or for-profit. But then there have also been hospitals operated by the federal government, these military hospitals, as well as some municipal hospitals. All of these different types of hospitals were operating more or less independently through the first half of the 20th century. But after the Great Depression and FDR's New Deal and World War II, the federal government, looking to expand some of the controls and powers that had been asserted as part of the New Deal, started to try to take a bigger stake in developing the healthcare system in the United States. Harry Truman, as president, proposed what he called the Fair Deal, which is a sweeping set of progressive ideas that, honestly, if you read it right now, you, it could have come out of the mouth of any sitting Democrat in Congress. But it had things like, you know, for our audience, slum clearance and public housing that led to the kinds of urban renewal projects that we saw in the 50s and 60s. And on the healthcare side, he proposed a form of universal health care, although that never passed into law. But what did get passed was known as the Hill-Burton Act. Uh, this was in 1947. And this was the federal government pumping money into hospitals in order for them to modernize and expand their facilities. It started out as a one-third federal match where state and local governments would make up the other two-thirds. But within a few years, that had been changed to two-thirds federal funding for hospital construction. But of course, like anything else government does, once they get involved, there start to be strings attached. <coughs> Charter schools. <laughs> so first of all, they were selective about the hospitals that they provided this money to. They required them to show some demonstration of economic viability. So what this meant was that hospitals that were doing well were able to get more money, and smaller hospitals, which might be serving rural communities or poorer communities, weren't able to get this funding. So if you think about what that does, it starts to create this situation where you're starting to centralize your healthcare facilities, particularly in more wealthy areas. And then those facilities can start to draw patients away from other smaller hospitals, making them less viable. Now, another string that was attached here was that they required any hospitals receiving this funding to provide what they called a reasonable amount of free care to patients who were unable to pay. Apparently, this was not enforced very well, and it's, it's questionable to what extent that was done. But it set this precedent of the government requiring hospitals to treat people for free. And as time went on, that's something that people started to look for stronger enforcement on. The next major milestone in federal regulation of healthcare facilities was the passage of Medicare. This was passed by Lyndon Johnson, but it's interesting that Harry Truman, who had promoted universal health care, was the first person to be enrolled in the new Medicare. To explain what the impact of this was, this is according to Wikipedia. It says before Medicare was created, only approximately 60% of people over the age of 65 had health insurance because many of them might have had conditions that didn't allow them to get it, with coverage often unavailable or unaffordable to many others, as older adults paid more than three times as much for health insurance as younger people. So it's worth noting here that by this time, people were able to get private health insurance, but the market at that time was apparently acting like insurance as opposed to what it is now, which is like a prepayment plan. 
So with all these people getting onto Medicare, it meant that you had a huge influx of people who now had better access to the healthcare system and to healthcare facilities. But again, of course, there were strings attached here. In 1986, there was an act passed called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, which is abbreviated as EMTALA. What this EMTALA Act did is it introduced a requirement for emergency departments to treat anybody who walked in the door, regardless of their ability to pay. So this is a little bit different than that requirement in that Hill-Burton Act for hospitals to provide some amount of free care. This is specifically saying that if somebody walks in the door of an emergency department, that you have to treat them or at least stabilize and transfer them somewhere, whether or not they're able to pay for their treatment. The hospital can still bill the patients, but the result has been that, this is again from Wikipedia, it says, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, 55% of U.S. emergency care now goes uncompensated. And keep in mind that emergency care is really expensive in hospitals. In a lot of cases, it might be kind of a loss leader where... (laughs) They lose money on people coming into the emergency department, but then if those people end up getting hospitalized, you know, then they might be able to to make money on the hospitalization and the follow-up treatment. This requirement to provide free care applies to any facilities that accept Medicare and Medicaid, which is almost every hospital out there because, again, according to Wikipedia, approximately 44% of all medical expenditures in the U.S. come from Medicare and Medicaid. Okay, so just think about that for a minute. You know, this idea that we have a free market in healthcare in America, you've got 44% is paid for by the federal government. Yeah, just to compare to Australia, which is one of the countries that a lot of people hold up as a well-working, socialized health system. Now, my personal experiences, I beg to differ a little bit on that. But from what I could find, the equivalent proportion in Australia is about 76% is publicly funded. So we're more than halfway there. So the U.S. is two-thirds of the socialized system that Australia is already. How's that working out for you? Well, again, it's certainly far from a free market. Beyond these requirements for uncompensated care, Medicare and Medicaid basically dictate how health care gets paid for in the United States. When it was first put in place, a Medicare was basically paying fee-for-service, which means that if a doctor treats you, he sends you a bill, you send it to Medicare, and they pay it, or you know some percentage of it or whatever. That changed in, I think it was the 1980s, where they changed the payment to what they call diagnosis-related group, or DRGs. What this is is that they've sat down and come up with this whole complex matrix of how they're going to reimburse hospitals based on an episode of care rather than the actual labor and resources that it costs the hospital to provide that care. So for example, if you go in with a stroke, then the hospital is going to get paid X dollars for stroke treatment for your whole continuum of care related to that stroke. So of course, two different people having a stroke could have very different types of treatment with very different costs. But my understanding of the way that Medicare pays for this is that you get paid for that diagnosis rather than the actual resources involved. So this puts a lot of risk onto hospitals to manage their care in a way that it aligns with the payments that Medicare is offering. It sounds to me a lot like rent control, where the government sets a ceiling on the amount you can get paid, and then it's up to the landlord to manage his costs accordingly. And of course, what results in the case of rent control is that Landlords often become slumlords where they neglect the properties, they put the minimal amount of investment into them. And so I wonder if there's a similar effect that happens at hospitals. Well, I mean, what happens is that it essentially takes market pricing off the table. I mean, the hospital, like typically with any business, if you're providing some service, you're setting prices in a way that you believe that you can apply your resources 
in order to be profitable, or at least in the case of a nonprofit, you know, to stay in business. But this DRG pricing, it creates a one-size-fits-all kind of price for certain services. And so it seems to me like that would stifle innovation because if you can find a better way to treat somebody for some certain diagnosis, but maybe it's a little bit more expensive, you could potentially be losing out to your competitors who are just sticking to the status quo and getting paid what the government's offering. This isn't just government who uses this type of billing. I think this is how most insurers pay for services these days. But again, it's really, I think, Medicare and Medicaid wagging the tail of these private insurance companies as they're negotiating their rates with hospitals. So obviously that has a big effect on the way that doctors are treating their patients, but it also has an effect on what gets built. Because again, let's say that there's some new technology out there that could better diagnose a certain disease or that could better treat a certain disease. I would think that this type of pricing is going to make a hospital less willing to take that on as kind of an entrepreneurial effort, you know, to take on some new technology until they can have some certainty about how that's going to be priced and how they can be paid for it. Let me give two examples of projects I've been involved with where Medicare and Medicaid regulations actually had an effect on what the hospital system decided to build for a project. The first one is a hospital I worked at that was classified as a critical access hospital. These are small hospitals, usually in rural areas, that get a different reimbursement rate from Medicare and Medicaid than other hospitals. And the logic here is that they're trying to make sure that they keep these small hospitals up and running in places where you might be a long way away from another hospital. Yeah, that's a pretty big problem in Australia too, where you've basically got one big city in each state and everything else is very remote and regional. So there are a lot of hospitals in these remote areas that really struggle to survive. Right. So you can understand the sentiment here of why the government would want to support these types of hospitals. The problem is, as we've said before, in order to get this reimbursement, there are strings attached. There are these very specific criteria that you have to qualify for in order to be classified as a critical access hospital. One of them is that you have to be a certain distance from other hospitals. I think you have to be in a rural area. And you're limited to have no more than 25 inpatient beds in the hospital. What happens is over time, if these small hospitals are successful, or if the area that they're in is growing, where the population is growing, and you have more and more people accessing that hospital within the same area, these hospitals have the same pressures that every other hospital might have to grow and to add services and to add inpatient beds. So this hospital that I worked at had their 25 beds, and they had increasing patient volumes, which really justified adding more beds. Because what tends to happen is that if you don't have enough inpatient beds, you have people being treated in the emergency room and essentially just taking up bed space in the emergency room instead of being moved on to an inpatient bed within the hospital because emergency room beds are supposed to be for less than 24 hours and they don't count in this number of inpatient beds. So you end up with a situation where you have greater pressure on the emergency department and more patients being cared for within the emergency department, which as I said before, is much more expensive and resource intensive than housing those patients in inpatient beds within the hospital. And that's exactly what happened at this hospital I was working for. We identified that they had a need for more inpatient beds, but they didn't want to go over that 25-bed limit set by Medicare and Medicaid because that would change the reimbursement rates for the entire hospital and totally throw their business model out of whack. 
So they ended up prioritizing, you know, expanding the emergency department rather than what would have been more economical for everybody, which would have been to add some inpatient beds. Now, why is this 25 bed number so important? Who knows? I mean, this isn't based on any kind of evaluation of the specific needs of, of each hospital. It's just some arbitrary number that some legislator pulled out of their ass. For the second example here, I did some work with another hospital where their existing surgery department within the hospital was out of date, needed improvements, it needed to be bigger, they needed more operating space, larger operating rooms. They had been maxing out the capacities of their operating rooms for a long time, which essentially means that you end up maybe having to refer your patients out to other hospitals for surgery. And in this case, it would have been really difficult to expand the surgery department within the existing hospital because it was on an upper level of the hospital. And in order to build it out, you would have had to build like three stories underneath it of something else. So what they decided to do was to build an ambulatory surgery center, which is a separate building where they can do less acute procedures that don't require hospitalization after surgery. We talked about this earlier, where, you, where now you can go in and have a procedure done and be able to be sent home that same day for many types of procedures. So by building an ambulatory surgery center, it takes a lot of that stress off of the hospital's operating rooms and would allow them to take on more surgical cases and expand their services while also reducing the stress on their surgical department within the hospital. So they got a piece of land a few miles from the hospital. We did the design for this building, which had an ambulatory surgery center on the first floor and physician offices on two floors above it. After we issued the construction documents for this project, Medicare and Medicaid made a change in the way that they reimburse ambulatory surgery centers. There's a distinction in their payment systems between whether services are being provided in a hospital-owned facility or in a private practice. So in other words, if you go to a specialist who's not affiliated with a hospital system, you know, maybe you go to like a dermatologist and they do some procedure in their office, there's a certain payment rate for that type of procedure that that doctor gets from Medicare, which is less than what a hospital would get for that same procedure if it was done in a hospital facility. And again, there's a logic here. Hospitals are a lot more intensive in their overhead and their infrastructure and all of the stuff that they need to do to keep being in a hospital to provide emergency services, to provide inpatient beds and labs and, and imaging and all this stuff. So you would expect that outpatient practices that didn't have all of this overhead would be able to provide their services at lower cost than the hospital. But there was this kind of disconnect in the way that this was set up at the time, where if you were the standalone provider practice, you got this lower reimbursement rate. But if that same practice were purchased or owned by a hospital, then they may be able to get the higher hospital reimbursement rate. And you could probably make an argument either way about whether or not that's appropriate, because of course, the hospital then is taking on more overhead in operating this smaller practice. But on my project, after we had issued the construction documents, Medicare and Medicaid changed this policy where they said that new outpatient facilities that were not located on a hospital campus, and they literally defined it as like 250 yards from the main hospital buildings. <laughs> they said that these outpatient facilities would no longer be able to be reimbursed at the same rate as these hospital-owned facilities that were part of the campus. So when this came down, the hospital decided to pull the ambulatory surgery center out of this project that we had designed. They were just going to make it medical offices instead because whatever this difference in reimbursement rate was, they didn't think that they were going to be able to operate it profitably anymore. And so they just decided not to do the project and just got stuck in the same situation managing their surgical caseload with the original outdated surgical department in the hospital. And I mean, they had actually ordered the steel for this building. The steel was being fabricated when this change came through. 
and they pulled it out. So now they had what ended up being like a really expensive medical office building because, of course, the, the ambulatory surgery center doesn't need to be built to the same standards as a hospital building, but it was still a lot more intensive than what you could have done with just a standalone medical office building. Yeah, we've made this comment before about how people think an anarchic society would be chaotic. <laughs> and that when you understand these massive, unpredictable shifts that can happen simply by some lobbyists in D.C. getting their way, life in a regulated market can be far more chaotic than it would likely be under a fully free market system. Yeah, and that's the whole point here is that this whole system is so far from a free market. Rather than having hospitals making entrepreneurial decisions about what services they think are most viable and are most beneficial, they're in many ways responding to these perverse incentives that are put in place by the federal government rather than market-based incentives of supply, demand, technology, innovation, and competition. This is not free market capitalism. It's crony capitalism. It's corporate fascism. It's central planning. It's interventionism. It's arbitrary. It's one-size-fits-all. It's bureaucratic. It's technocratic. It may be the one industry in America that is the farthest removed from a free market. Yeah, I don't have as much experience with hospitals as you do. In fact, ever since I saw that show Grey's Anatomy, I avoid them at any cost. Because I figure if that's what these people are like, I don't want to be anywhere near that place. <laughs> but sometimes situations do arise. In fact, about two years ago, I was chopping some firewood using a miter box saw. Probably a cherry tree. <laughs> and you got a sore throat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a little bit worse than that. I grabbed the piece of wood that I had just cut and just lifted it slightly to pull it off of the saw. Just that the dull blade was still spinning down, and apparently the blade guard was stuck open. <laughs> now, I found that out the hard way. <laughs> so as I lifted the wood, I got a nice gouge in the top of my finger. Now, luckily, my wife has been trained in first aid, and after I rinsed it out, she bandaged it up pretty good. Which in Australia just means what, you just spit on it and, and like rub it with your finger? Yeah, she'd be right. So Australia does have a socialized health system where they have hospitals that are owned, I think, mostly at the state level. And they've recently built a giant white elephant, I mean, a new hospital facility in Adelaide called the, the new Royal Adelaide Hospital to replace the old Royal Adelaide Hospital, which has been rapidly decaying for the last couple decades. But like in America, there are also a lot of private hospitals, which you can typically access if you have a private health insurance plan, which we do. So we had to decide whether we wanted to go to a private hospital emergency room or the glistening new Royal Adelaide Hospital emergency room. And in between bouts of nearly fainting, I had enough curiosity to see what this shiny new hospital facility was going to be like. So we decided to go there. So we went to the emergency room. I think I had to sit in the waiting room for about 45 minutes before they actually took me in to look at my finger. And eventually they x-rayed it and cleaned out the wound and temporarily patched it up. And I was able to go home about five or six hours later. What was interesting is that I did have to have some follow-up surgery to repair the finger. And they told me that I could go to one of these private ambulatory surgeries and that I could get it operated on within a couple of days. Or I could wait for a slot at the gigantic, shiny new Royal Adelaide Hospital and I would have to wait five or six days. And I'm thinking that the longer I wait, the more scar tissue they're going to have to dig out of this thing before they stitch it all back together. So I chose to go the private route. And it all came out fine. I got full functionality back in that finger. I didn't even faint until about six weeks later when they took the Band-Aid off. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Australia does have a socialized medical system, but it does have many of the same shortcomings that you see in other socialized systems, where even though the costs may be 
significantly reduced or paid by someone else entirely. The economic law of demand, which states that at lower prices, more of a product will be demanded, coupled with the requirement to treat every patient that walks in the door, means that there are often shortages of resources even in a brand new gigantic facility like the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And in fact, during cold and flu season, they have ads on the TV with these doctors imploring people not to go to the emergency room whenever they get a cold, because apparently that's a big problem that a lot of people, instead of going to a private physician, when they start getting sick, they just go to the emergency room and expect to be taken care of there. That's funny, because that's the exact argument that people make for single-payer health care in the U.S., and that was a big impetus behind Obamacare here, is that they say that one of these problems we have, we've talked about how expensive emergency care is. And what happens in the U.S., partially because you don't necessarily have to pay if you go, is that that's what happens, that people who don't think that they're going to have to pay if they go to the primary care provider, when something happens, they just go right to the emergency room because the cost to them is potentially less than if they were to go to a physician office. So one of the arguments behind Obamacare was that they wanted to get everybody onto some form of health insurance, whether that's Medicare and Medicaid or private health insurance. So they've now made it mandatory for you to purchase health insurance Otherwise, you pay what has been ridiculously called a tax in order to make it legal. But it's essentially just a fine for not purchasing health insurance. And, and I don't know these numbers offhand, but my understanding is that this hasn't really had the effect that they wanted, that, that you still have people going to the emergency department, that they're not just shunting these cases to primary care providers, but now everybody's paying a lot more for health insurance because of all the mandates of Obamacare. And from what you're saying, it sounds like even if we went to a full single-payer type of system like you have in Australia, even then you still wouldn't be able to divert these cases from the emergency department. <laughs> that it may not just be a problem of you know, not having insurance pay for primary care, but there are other stresses and incentives within the system that are still making people respond by walking into the emergency department. Yeah, I mean, one thing to consider there is that in Australia, like I said, there is a mix of private and publicly owned medical facilities. And so a lot of the physicians are essentially private However, they are typically reimbursed by what's called bulk billing, which just means it's similar to being, like being paid by Medicare or Medicaid in the U.S. I think what's probably more of a factor here is that there are a lot of people that just don't go to the doctor, that don't have a family doctor that they go to regularly. And so when they get sick, they don't really know where else to go, so they just go to the hospital, to the emergency room. And that's going to happen regardless of what the economic model is. So you would want a system that actually aligned the costs with the importance of going to that facility. So even if you had to pay a small fee to go to the emergency room versus going to your physician or some other sort of outpatient facility, then you'd have a natural incentive to go to the right place and to free up resources at the emergency room. And that is how private insurance works in the U.S. Um, in a large part, where you might have a plan where you have maybe a $25 copay to go to your primary care provider, but then you have maybe like a $250 copay to go to the emergency department. And not only that, but now there are many what are called urgent care facilities, which are less intensive than an emergency department, but you often have a copay that's more in line with a physician office visit rather than an emergency department. Not only that, but depending on your plan, you might have a deductible where up to a certain amount, you're paying out of pocket for whatever service you're getting. So even if you have coverage in the U.S., and I think Medicare and maybe even Medicaid have at least copays as well, if not deductibles. That first dollar, and really depending on your plan, it could be the first, you know, $10,000 that are billed for your health services come out of your pocket. So in the U.S., there is some incentive for patients making cost-based decisions on where they're seeking service, which it sounds like you don't really have in Australia under a single-payer system. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember when we made that decision to go to the public hospital rather than a private one, 
I think part of our reasoning was that the public hospital would be essentially free, whereas the private one, we would have had some sort of a deductible that we would have to pay. So both in the US and Australia, it's not like you have one ideal free market system and one ideal social system or anything close to either of those extremes. What you have is a complete chaotic mess of bureaucracy and perverse incentives that is barely mitigated by the shimmers of free market elements that occasionally shine through. The last piece of regulation that I want to talk about here is what's called the Certificate of Need. Uh, it's funny, I've actually heard <laughs> in the wake of all this coronavirus talk, um, I've heard a handful of libertarians talk about this. Tom Woods had somebody on his show talking about Certificates of Need. I think I heard Bob Murphy mention it. This is this like obscure piece of legislation that exists at the state level that all of a sudden has become like a libertarian yeah. talking point. <laughs> well, li libertarians sticking up obscure laws to complain about? You don't say. Well, I do want to complain about it because this is something I've, I've had direct experience with. The first law was put in place in 1964 in New York State. And over the next 10 years, there were, I think, 22 other states that put these types of laws in place. Essentially what this is, is if a hospital wants to expand a service, build a new facility, or expand or renovate their facilities, that they need to go to the state and go through this approval process and that the state has to say, yes, okay, it's okay for you to put that MRI into your hospital or to you know, add an oncology program to your services. So it's essentially this whole system where, where hospitals are going and asking permission from the state in order to innovate and to expand their services. Not only that, but part of this process is there's a whole hearing involved where you go and show up and you make your case to have this service, but then all your competitors show up and they tell the state about what a bad idea it is for you to have this service because, you know, it's going to take their business away. It's going to make their hospitals less viable and all this other stuff. And that's exactly what happens. And so, you know, just imagine if, if this were like a grocery store, right? Like imagine you're in some town and you've got here in New England, we have, you know, Market Basket, we have Hannaford's or Shaw's or Stop and Shop or whatever. Right. So let's say you have these handful of grocery stores around your town and here comes Whole Foods and Whole Foods wants to come and open a grocery store. You know, imagine that they would have to go to the state and ask the state for permission to sell groceries within that town. You'd have Hannaford's and Market Basket and all these other grocery stores coming out and saying they're going to take away 10 percent of our business or 15 percent or whatever. You make up some number of our business and that's going to make, you know, that's going to make our produce department less viable. And, you know, we're going to have to shut down the butcher in our grocery store if they have a butcher and these are exactly the kind of arguments that hospitals come in and make in these hearings. But don't hospitals just care about people and want to um, help people? Our healthcare workers don't care about making a profit. They just want to help people, especially <laughs> the ones who work for government hospitals. Well, in all fairness, I mean, over time, if people are choosing to go to this, this other facility instead of your facility, it's because that facility is providing better service at a better price in possibly a better facility. And so what the certificate of need process does is it can tend to prop up existing players in the healthcare market within any given area, while at the same time keeping everybody in this kind of status quo situation where it becomes difficult to innovate and it becomes difficult to expand your services. And I'll tell you that this is something that weighs on the thinking of decision makers in hospitals. You know, when they're making decisions about what projects to pursue, they're talking about whether or not they think that they can get it past the certificate of need process. And if they think there's going to be too much opposition to it, they might not just pursue that project. Now, generally, I think that most projects do get through the process, at least if somebody really wants to, to go ahead with it, that eventually they do get through and there might be some you know, conditions and caveats here and there. But then there are also a lot of projects where they might back out of it or just not submit the project in the first place. The other way that this affects the development of hospitals 
is that there are certain thresholds where you might have, you know, like a minor application or a major application, you know, where a minor application is something you can just do kind of administratively just by submitting the forms and then they review it and send it back to you and give you thumbs up or thumbs down. Whereas a major application might have to go through more of this whole hearing process. And so what that does is you have hospitals planning out their projects in a way that they can group projects together so that they're trying to keep them under those thresholds. So they might end up doing, rather than doing like the big project that's going to be controversial, but that might really give them some much needed improvement, they might instead put the resources to doing a handful of smaller projects, which doesn't have as big of an impact on their hospital, but which they can get done without going through the whole certificate of need process. Because of course, the other thing here is that this whole process takes time, I mean, it takes months to get through a certificate of need process. Typically, when we build out a project schedule for healthcare, you build out the schedule for schematic design, you get to the end of schematic design, and then the schedule stops because you don't know when you're going to be able to pick the design up again or if you're going to be able to pick the design up again to move forward with your construction document. It really is a wild card and it really is a difficult thing for hospitals to manage. I mean, that's got to be similar to someone building a residential development and they've got to go through all these environmental approvals and and local council approvals, development approvals and all that stuff. I imagine it's a similar sort of process, but possibly even more difficult to navigate due to the influence of these existing competitors. Yeah, it, it is a lot like that. But I mean, the difference here is that the only purpose for this process is to determine whether or not the town or the state needs this service that you're providing. Yeah. I mean, imagine this, imagine like Elon Musk, if he had to go through this and they're like, you know what? We don't need like a private rocket ship. Don't go build that. That's a waste of money or whatever. These kind of things, these kind of innovations would just never happen. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's like a, you know, a good use of money, but that's not my decision to make. Now, of course, the justification for this is that they're saying, well, you know, there's all this federal money and, you know, individual citizens spending their own money or at least their insurer's money on healthcare. They think that there's this all this duplication in the healthcare system, right? That you have a duplication of services. That if this hospital has an MRI, well, that hospital doesn't need to have an MRI because everybody can just go to that one. Otherwise, the hospital is duplicating services and they're going to be charging more because now both facilities aren't able to get enough patients to support that capital investment. But of course, you know, you, you look at any other industry and that's this is the exact opposite of how you control costs, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, economics 101, it's like the way that any industry brings costs down typically is through competition. And when you have competition, yes, you have duplication. But at the end of the day, that tends to lead towards a reduction in costs and an increase in quality. And the other thing that that does is it leads to an increase in redundancy, right? So now we're getting back to this whole question of, the COVID question where we don't have enough ICU beds. As you're explaining this, I feel like beating my head against the wall. I mean, you can see precisely how this sort of thing would prevent hospitals from building excess capacity that they might need in the time of a peak emergency. Exactly. I mean, if, if you go in, so I did, a, I worked on an ICU project. I think it was maybe six rooms in the existing ICU and we we're expanding to 10 or something like that. But if we went in there and said, you know, our existing hospital, we have six ICU rooms this is our patient load and this is our demand and this is these are the days that we hit our peak. And we went in there and said, you know what, we have these six ICU rooms. Now we want to build 25 additional ICU rooms. <laughs> you would be laughed out of the room. There's no way they would allow you to do that. And frankly, I mean, of course, the other part of this is that hospitals, you know, they're not going to build that much more than, as you said, it's that whole peak versus average discussion. Obviously, there are some reasonable limits that hospitals are going to stay within in terms of what they're building. 
But yeah, nobody's going to think to go to a CON hearing and say that they're going to build three times the ICU rooms that they need to meet their normal peak. So this has been a problem for a long time. Now, of course, New York City is having some of the greatest stresses on their system. And New York State was the first state to enact a certificate of deed law. So this has been going on there for decades. And there have been statistics out about, you know, the number of ICU beds per capita compared to other states. And New York is like way down on the list. They just don't have as many ICU beds per capita as other places do. There was a time um, in the 70s where the federal government was requiring every state to enact certificate of need laws. And I think every state did it except for Louisiana for some reason. However, since the, I want to say the, the late 80s or maybe the 90s, that requirement went away and a lot of states have been removing their CON requirements. But of course, one state that hasn't is New York. In fact, I've been involved in the CON process on a project in New York before, and it's as bad as any other state. I've been through to New York and Vermont. New Hampshire wasn't that bad. It was kind of like a rubber stamp. And they actually got rid of it in, I think, 2016. But there are still something like 35 states who still have a certificate of need program in place. So, you know, that's not the full story of why we have perceived shortages, but it just shows you the mindset of these government regulators of how they think the healthcare system should be managed and regulated and the backwards ideas they have about ways to reduce costs within the healthcare system. So where all of this leaves us is we've had about 70 years of significant government involvement and manipulation of the healthcare system in the United States, both in terms of how care is provided and in terms of how and where healthcare facilities are built. The result is that we've tended to see more and more centralization of healthcare services, where you have larger and larger hospital systems joining together and kind of gobbling up these smaller hospitals and smaller physician practices in order to get everybody under these bigger kind of monopolistic organizations. Part of that is the cost burdens of Medicare and Medicaid, where in order to be profitable, it's kind of like the whole growth Ponzi scheme we talk about with cities. It's like these hospitals are just trying to bring in more and more patients to get more and more people paying into the system. And not only that, but a huge part of healthcare expenses these days are administrative costs. And a lot of that has to do with managing these payment systems that are dictated by Medicare and Medicaid. Smaller practices are having a hard time just doing the paperwork to get paid for the work that they do. And again, they're not even getting paid for the work that they do. They're getting paid for the diagnosis that walks in the door. So you've got centralization, consolidation, cost cutting, lack of redundancy, and in some places, lack of quality because as maintenance costs pile up, as facilities age, and as it becomes harder and harder to attract and retain qualified staff. In addition, technology has been improving healthcare so that you have a lot of things that may have previously required hospitalization that can now be done in an outpatient facility or even through home care or, or telehealth or something like that. Or a surgery that 20 years ago would have had to be done in a hospital and left you laid up in a hospital room for three or four days can now be done in an ambulatory surgery center where they send you home at the end of the day. The patients you have in hospitals tend to be more acute patients, patients with more chronic disease, and patients with emergencies coming into the emergency departments. Now, this is a good thing in general because nobody wants to go to the hospital if they don't have to, but it creates a real problem for hospitals themselves where they have less services that they can get paid for to support things like their emergency care and more expensive ICU care that are difficult to make profitable. So where does this leave us with the COVID-19 response? We do seem to have a situation where there aren't enough ICU rooms to deal with the patients who need them. And in addition to that, it's not just the ICU rooms. I mentioned this earlier. 
What these COVID patients really need is what's called an airborne infection isolation room. What that means is that the HVAC system in the room is set up to be negative pressure, which means that they're taking more air out of the room than they're putting in, or at least the air pressure in the room is negative compared to the air pressure in the hallway, right? They want the airflow going from the hallway you know, into the room and then, and then out. And so there are different ways to control for this. You need to have certain doors in it that are sealed, the HVAC system, exhaust out of that room. You have a vestibule where when the healthcare workers are coming into the space, it's like an airlock, right? They come into that space, they get gowned up or whatever they need to do, and then they proceed into the room. So that there are all these ways of maintaining that airflow in that room so that whatever's in that room in terms of an infectious disease doesn't get out of the room into the rest of the hospital. But these types of rooms generally aren't used that often in hospitals. Luckily, there aren't that many airborne infectious diseases that are that serious that they need to isolate people in this way. In an emergency department, I did an emergency department that had like 12 rooms in it. And I think we did two um, airborne infection isolation rooms within that suite, okay? So it's maybe like, I don't know, maybe 10% of your rooms might be an infection isolation room. In an ICU, you might have a couple more, but, you know, again, it might be like two out of 10 or something like that. So it's not just that people need an ICU room. They actually need one of these infection isolation rooms. Because a lot of patient spaces, you typically want to be positive pressure, which means that the air in that room is going out into the hallway so that you don't have other infectious stuff that might be in the hallways getting into the patient room. So like an operating room, you have this sterile environment where you actually have like a curtain of air that comes down around the operating table, and then that gets pulled out to the exterior of the room, and then that whole space has positive air pressure relative to the hallway. That's kind of the idea that most rooms in hospitals are set up with. But these infection isolation rooms is the opposite of that. Now you want to be pulling air into the room or at least be taking any air that's in that room and getting it outside of the building. And just blow it onto the sidewalk next to the hospital. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to just set these rooms up for these COVID patients coming in. I've actually been talking a bit with a group of architects in New York City. This is through a friend of mine who works down there who's looking for ways to kind of volunteer and find projects that they can support to try to help to address a crisis. And so we've been looking into some solutions that might be out there for what hospitals can do to provide some temporary solutions to address this surge of COVID patients needing these really specialized types of spaces. The first obvious solution is to take existing space that they have within their hospital and to convert that to spaces where they can effectively treat these COVID patients. I've seen some hospitals where they've put in like these temporary ventilation units where they have basically like a dryer vent hose, you know, going out the window and they're able to negatively pressurize the room that way. There's an organization called the American Society, I think it's the American Society of Healthcare Engineers, ASHI. They've put out some guidelines on various ways that hospitals can retrofit their existing patient rooms to be these negative pressure infection isolation rooms, depending on what their existing HVAC setup is within the space. So that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. That's kind of the best way to deal with the problem is if you keep these patients within or at least in close proximity to their existing ICUs and just get some other rooms working in a way where they're not spreading that infection. Some other solutions that are out there, the Army Corps of Engineers, of course, they've had to deal with things like this in the past for various types of emergencies where they've had to put up a hospital really quickly in response to a disaster of some sort. So they have some guidelines out there that are kind of interesting. One of these is what they call arena to healthcare, where you take something like a basketball arena and you put in some temporary partitions and things to divide up the space and to create these treatment pods where you can have nurses treating multiple patients. Of course, the problem with that with COVID is that, again, these are infectious patients, so you don't necessarily want to be 
grouping people together, at least if you're grouping them together, you want to group them together just with other COVID patients. So the only people you want going into a place like that is patients who have tested positive, who you're certain, you know, already have COVID when they walk in the door. There may be a use for that. But again, it's difficult in those types of places to really get the kind of intensive ICU type of equipment and staff that you need to treat some of these more acute patients. But that might be a solution for like the lower acuity patients who just need some kind of respiratory treatment and some observation while they're recovering from the disease. And you see these stories coming out of China where they've been building these 1,000-bed hospitals in 10 days. And this probably uses some of the same technology that they've used to build you know, skyscraper in 30 days or something like that, where they have all this off-site modular construction, and then they bring these pre-assembled modules to site and, and fit them out, and then, then you've got a hospital. I'm kind of surprised because I'm wondering, you know, does that mean that they actually just had a thousand of these modules sitting around somewhere ready to go, just waiting to be mobilized to site? Or is it more like the modules they had were originally going to be intended for residential projects or something or offices, and they just repurposed them and sent them to these hospitals? Have you paid much attention to that at all? Yeah, I'm not sure. I've read a little bit about it. Yeah, my understanding is that they've produced these, you know, these modular units basically while they were getting the foundations in the ground. I suspect that some of this was probably, first of all, I think that they have built hospitals like this previously. So I think that they had some of the plans in place in order to get something like that off the ground quickly. I mean, you know, 10 days is remarkable, but, you know, (laughs) I also wonder what it's like inside that hospital. Well, from what I've seen of construction projects in China, my impression has always been that they don't actually design anything. They just send guys to site and tell them to start building and then If something doesn't come out right, they just redo it. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of what I would expect here. I would imagine that compared to like American healthcare standards, I just wonder how that holds up. And not only that, but where are they getting the staff to staff this hospital? Yeah. I mean, I guess they have one guy like, you know, welding steel one day and the next day they have him put on a surgical mask and he's going and operating a ventilator. Well, in China, they'll do stuff like ship people across the country just to work on certain projects. So they've probably just brought people in from different regions into Wuhan to staff these hospitals. And then, of course, you know, they're depriving hospital staff in these other areas where hopefully they're not as hard hit by the virus in those other areas. Yeah, boy, now you say that, it's like, I wonder how much of this is like, you know, healthcare theater. <laughs> like, are they really, are they really utilizing that hospital? Or are they just being like, look at, we're addressing the problem. We just built a thousand bed hospital in 10 days. Problem solved. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you know? It's all this. I don't mean to be that cynical. It seems like a, like a huge effort that they're putting in there. But I think one of the biggest problems with this whole thing has been that most of the good data we have has come from China. And it's like, do you really trust any of that, <laughs> any of the numbers, any of any of the news stories or whatever? I mean, I've seen news stories about the Chinese government welding people's doors shut so they'd stay inside their homes during the, like if they were quarantined, like ridiculous stuff like that, which I mean, I don't know that that sounds to me like some sort of propaganda, some, you know, some anti-China person dreamed up. But who knows, you know, I haven't watched all the, I'm sure there's YouTube videos of all this kind of stuff too. Yeah, you know, I mean, getting back to, back to the hospital being built, I think it is pretty remarkable, even if they're able to provide some level of care in it. But here's the problem, like they build this huge hospital and then we go through this whole COVID thing over the next, who oh, knows so many months, let's say six months, right? <laughs> what happens after that? <laughs> now you spent all this money, all these resources on this hospital that does what after that? Did they need that hospital before like before this whole event? It does the same thing that all the ghost cities in China are doing. <laughs> it sits there. I guess so. I, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like when people talk about, oh, we should be building more ICU rooms to address the COVID issue. 
It's like, yeah, I mean, it would be great if we could do that and had more ICU rooms. But then what happens to those six months from now? Now you have these really expensive rooms that you've built. I mean, just to put it in perspective, like around here, an ICU room is probably like 400 bucks a square foot, you know? I mean, to build, just just the construction costs, right? Yeah. And I, never mind the, the staffing and the equipment and everything else. How does that compare to a standard room? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you're probably in the in the 300s for most acute hospital type of construction. This isn't cheap space you're putting up. And, you know, you get this whole, all this certificate of need discussion. It's like, what's the need for that space? The long-term need? I mean, over the long term, like, you're not going to be able to utilize those ICU rooms. And it's going to be, I don't want to say wasted capital, but you're going to be spending a lot of money on upgrading this infrastructure for this one particular surge event where what would be better from from a longer term view is if you can find ways to address the surge with more temporary measures and then return to a more, you know, more of that that average level <laughs> of healthcare provision or, or of your, your facility after this is hopefully over soon. Yeah, I saw a tweet the other day that a lot of regional hospitals that aren't in any of these COVID hotspot areas are really struggling because they're putting on more staff in anticipation of an influx of COVID patients. Of course, they're not actually getting the patients in because they don't actually have as big of an outbreak there. Yeah, and they're also cutting other cases out of the hospital. So they're postponing elective surgeries and other types of services that would normally be filling up those hospital rooms. Yeah, so it's almost like some of these places could have made a certificate of need argument against overstaffing. So this shows that even in the short term, we're seeing the effects of some of this misallocation of resources and malinvestment. I don't really know all the details as to whether these hospitals are in some way being forced to do all these reallocations. But this clearly shows where you need the ability to make these decisions at the local level of each hospital in order to make sure that resources are allocated to the most urgent needs. I think the best approach for hospitals right now would be to find ways to provide more temporary space that they need in a way that doesn't burden them with future costs or future facilities that might be underutilized. There's this other idea. This is, again, from the Army Corps of Engineers, similar to the arena to healthcare. It's, it's hotel to healthcare where you know you have a lot of hotels right now that are sitting basically empty because people can't go anywhere. They have some guidelines set up for how to take a hotel and convert it to patient rooms, essentially, <laughs> which could be a good setup. But again, there's, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to go into place in a hospital, especially to get it up to that, that ICU level um, in terms of, of the HVAC, emergency power, I mean, medical gases. It's not just a matter of rolling a hospital bed into a hotel room. That's if you can even turn the bed and get it in the doorway through the hallway. But, you know, it's, it's a reasonable idea if they could actually get something like that up and running in time to take in some of these patients. And then that's something that afterwards could be converted back to a hotel use, hopefully without a lot of wasted cost. I think the next best approach is to use these medical tents, which, you know, you've probably seen. This is like the MASH, you know, army medical <laughs> tent that you can get and set up a little kind of tent hospital. They're modular. They're flexible. They're cheap. They set up quickly. I read one of these companies that they can set up one of these tents in like a half hour with four people and have it up and running. They can have negative pressure for the infection isolation that you need. They can support the equipment that you need in those spaces. You know, they've, they've kind of figured all of that stuff out of how you get in the power and the med gases and all that stuff and the infection control measures. And um, they kind of have all that ready to go in these in these tents. Plus, you can put them anywhere. You can put it in the parking lot of the hospital. You can even connect it, you know, to the door of the hospital somewhere. So you could bring patients in and out of the hospital if you needed to. And plus, it keeps patients, if you have one of these tents on your site that you're designating as like the COVID tent, it keeps those patients out of the hospital. So now your ICU, you're not risking contaminating the ICU within the hospital with these COVID patients. 
And then when this is all said and done, they can break those down and the tents can go away and, and they can go back to their normal operation of the hospital. So, of course, the one huge drawback is that you're in a freaking tent. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, is this still pretty cold over there right now or what? No, they, they heat and they condition them and stuff. They're I don't know. They're probably double walled or something. But, I mean, it's just, it, it does not seem like the place you want to <laughs> you spend your final days if it comes to that. Or just even spend, you know, in healthcare design. We focus so much on the patient experience. This is concept of evidence-based design where it's been shown that, you know, lighting and space for family and all this stuff, there's all these design aspects that we agonize over as, as healthcare designers. I mean, that all just goes out the window when you're just sticking somebody in a tent with, with, you know, eight other beds on either side of them. Yeah. But I think in order to address these, these really critical, urgent needs, to me, that seems like the best out-of-the-box solution to get something up and running quickly and then to break it down when it's all said and done without a lot of upfront costs and without a lot of risk and with the ability to locate it right where they need it at the hospital as opposed to some hotel across town where they have to negotiate with the owner and all this other stuff. So that to me is, is the most interesting kind of solution that I've seen out there. You know, another, <laughs> I don't know if this is a solution or not, but apparently there's some, there's a Navy hospital ship that was stationed down, I think it was being repaired in Virginia, and they've now sent that to New York City to provide hospital space for people. But they've said that they're not taking COVID patients onto the ship because then it turns into, you know, that cruise ship that's floating around that nobody... Yeah. <laughs> so once it gets onto the ship, like, there's no getting off the ship. I think it's docked in Australia. The Ruby Princess has docked in... I think it's yeah, docked I in Sydney. Yeah, I think, I think that was the big one. Well, at least in Australia, that's been the big story. Quick aside here. So the way that I found out about this whole COVID thing, we found out about it months ago because my wife's parents were actually planning to go on a cruise. And then when this all, all this, you know, COVID stuff came up, I started coming up in China before it got out of China. They were like stressing over, you know, should we go on the cruise or not? What if it gets on the cruise and all this stuff? Because the cruise was actually in, was actually going to China. So fortunately, they were, they were able to back out of that. Well, it was unfortunate that they didn't get to you know, do the traveling they wanted to do, but now is not the time to be heading to China. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter saying stuff like, oh, there are no libertarians in a pandemic. But from what I've seen, it seems like every government response to this thing has been either inadequate or overreach in some way. And there has actually been a lot of private actions by both individuals and private organizations, private businesses that have gone a long way towards doing what they can to either self-isolate or to provide services to people in a way that's meant to prevent further spread of the virus. And we talked about this before with some of the things that supermarkets are doing. I've also seen businesses like my internet provider has announced that they're increasing bandwidth limits for every account, at least for a short period of time. And that's to allow everyone to work from home and, and do a lot more of the video streaming without incurring a lot more cost. And I think that at least some people are starting to realize that this is the sort of situation that we're always told, like, oh, well, if there's a pandemic or if there's some big catastrophic event, that that's when you need the government to step in and do the right thing and really solve the problem. But a lot of people are kind of looking around going, uh, is that really what's happening here? Have, have they actually done the right thing? Have they actually responded properly? Have they solved the problems? And I think a lot of people are kind of realizing, I mean, you can see this just by seeing how much toilet paper there is on the shelf at your local supermarket, that people are pretty quickly realizing that they need to come up with their own individual solutions to this problem and do what they can to both prevent the spread as well as keep themselves safe. Thinking about how that's played out in the world of healthcare, what I've seen is hospitals really being proactive about their response to this. As you said, some of them are staffing up to the extent that they can. 
I saw something about MGH in Boston where they've built out something like 60 or so ICU rooms that are almost done. So they were looking at this proactively and essentially making an entrepreneurial decision about what was going to be needed and how they could best respond to it long before the government really even understood the problem. To twist that saying that there are no libertarians in a pandemic, I was kind of wondering, you know, is there such thing as public space in a pandemic? And I think we've argued that there can be with reasonable precautions by the owners of that public space. But there's such a prevalent mindset that only government can own public space and therefore only government can act to make those public spaces safe. And they have very little incentive to do so in a way that preserves people's rights or abilities to use those spaces in the way that they normally do. So whenever I hear an argument like this, my response is that my rights are not subject to your lack of imagination. Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. If civil liberties don't exist when they're under their greatest pressure, then civil liberties don't exist. Bam! Mic drop. <laughs> Snuck it over. Hashtag told. Hashtag told.